The Highlander Podcast is brought to you by Outdoor Product Design and Development, a four-year undergraduate degree focused on training the next generation of product creators for the sports and outdoor industries. Learn more at opdd.usu.edu. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Outdoor Recreation Archive, a collaboration between OPDD and USU Special Collections to preserve the history and print materials of the people, products, and brands of the outdoor industry. Follow the archive at Outdoor Rec Archive on Instagram. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Utah Outdoor Association, a business association focused on elevating Utah's outdoor industry through educational programming and events. Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. On this episode, Annie Agle, Senior Director of Impact and Sustainability at Cotopaxi, talks to OPDD students about the benefits of using existing fabrics over creating new materials and the challenges designers face when balancing sustainability and performance. First of all, yeah, I'm Annie Eagle, so I oversee everything that comes around from our giving to our um, climate neutral certification and help kind of work hand in glove with the product team in terms of things like material selection, our restricted substance list, and really considering sustainability both socially and environmentally across our supply chain, which is where we know we have our biggest aspects. And so I think the spiel that I make around this, which I think being in design, being in this space will not come as a surprise to any of you, but also often really like takes people aback is that especially in the product apparel space, 90% of your environmental impact for a product occurs within the supply chain before it's even cut or sewed. And so of really thinking as designers about What is the reality upstream from where you're at? Um, Really considering that the International Labor Organization now quantifies that um, coercion and forced labor in global supply chains is now the number one cause for human slavery across the planet now. Um, It it even um, beat in a really horrible kind of race to the bottom, um, sexual slavery trafficking. So just knowing that, knowing that those numbers are increasing in the wrong direction because of COVID, as designers, what obligation do we have to consider the ecosystems, the biodiversities of um, Global South? Um, because the vast majority of product supply chains in the fashion apparel sector are located in Global South. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that, but as they're set up right now, they're pretty extractive. Um, And I think one concept that I've also gotten pretty passionate about in my own academic space is this idea of natural capital, of trying to quantify and put a price to nature and the services nature provides for us as a species. And one of the most alarming areas where natural capital is being lost is in the fashion apparel sector. And there's been some interesting work that basically just used a t-shirt from H&M 
and teased out all of the natural components that went into it from the cotton to the water to grow the cotton to the water to dye the process and all of the chemistry for that process and where that comes from. Um, you know, what are the linchpin natural capital inputs that produce pretty much everything, everything that's made has one natural capital source, if you think about it. So even a sustainable, say, um, solar panel, well, the sun is a great sort of renewable energy source in the sky, but there's nothing that inherently sustainable about a solar panel. And all of its components are coming from natural capital sources. And so in the same sense, in a t-shirt, what they actually found when they kind of pieced apart a t-shirt is that basically if you were to sell all of the natural capital components as commodities on the commodities market, it would be worth more than the t-shirt. In other words, we're literally destroying net value all along the value chain that you can't get back. You can't get that natural capital back once it's been converted. You can get a portion of it back, but it's never going to be 100%. Um, so there's those are more kind of my spiel in terms of things that have been on my mind a lot. Um, and here's what we kind of do with that information at Cotopaxi. One is really leaning into this remnant space of using dead stock. Um, and it creates, as a lot of you know, and I've seen a lot of your projects. And one thing, one of the strengths of the USU project, I think, is that you guys really focus on upcycling, recycling, really creative solutions in terms of design and where design can build this new blueprint for sustainability that then has pretty significant impacts across the world in terms of supply chain. And so that's what we try to look at from a design perspective at Cotopaxi is how, how do we break this cycle of just destroying value at every phase of production manufacturing? How can we add value or how can we decrease net, um, net loss and making sure that there is real value in the product? And there's a few ways you can do that. Um, so one, like I said, our biggest push is around remnant because if you're using, if you're not contributing to the inputs required to meet a fabric, that's a really significant achievement. And we know that the carbon and social inputs, once you have the fabric that's been milled, are significantly less. And so uh, we take the stance as the company of trying to just move away from anything that's virgin because we have enough materials that are already post-production that we should not have to manufacture any more fabric. The amount of fabric we're sitting on as a species is it should be sufficient for us for all time. Like we, if we're, we should be good. We shouldn't have to be making any more fabric. It's like something insane. Like, uh, you know, it could cover the planet 11 times over and that's just the excess fabric. So I just think there's some pretty astonishing statistics around there. So moving away from virgin in general is a really good move. I think the other thing that we've really taken to heart, given that our mission is really on ending poverty in people, that we must lean into our supply chain. We must extend a hand to workers throughout this phase. Um, 
you know, the way that workers who the vast majority of workers in supply chain are women. And, you know, some of the stories that we've gotten back through fair trade, through some of our grant making across our supply chain tells, paints a very different picture of COVID than we have in America, which is largely, uh, you know, it's still pretty political, also personal, who's gotten vaccinated, who hasn't. There, it's it's much more like, well, I haven't been able to shop for groceries because there's been an a thousand percent inflation in groceries in my small town in India. Um, and so dealing, we're talking to people dealing with a very different set of issues. Um, you know, our factory in China has had to do another lockdown. That means that for every day they're not able to work there is a day without income for people who are really you know, above the line in terms of extreme poverty, but they're touching that line. Um, And we're also seeing that eight to 10 million people, it's projected have been pushed back into extreme poverty who escaped poverty in the last 25 years, Um, that there's been a massive downward surge um, of people who are being pushed into extreme poverty, the vast majority of them work in informal supply chains. So you're thinking about um, construction laborers, you're thinking about factory workers, you're thinking about miners. So these are the kind of people who are most vulnerable and who have been hit hardest by this pandemic. And so I think we're taking active steps at Cotopaxi, one is just around pricing, making sure that um, when garments are priced, that we see uh, labor priced in a way that is fair labor wage. Very few brands insist on transparent pricing because they don't want to provide it and the supplier doesn't want to provide it. Um, and so it's a no-win situation really where neither, neither party has insight into like frankly how that how that dynamic is working as a business model and in the end the people who are most um susceptible to say uh debt crashes cancellations of orders situations like covid are workers because they can get pushed off while the product pricing has already been agreed to but there's no hard agreement around labor price and so that's one is making sure that labor is being priced Um, the other thing that we're really trying to do is just with our grant making reach out to all of our factory suppliers, especially in tier one and tier two. Tier three is a little bit harder for Cotopaxi to do anything about because we're such a small piece of that business. Um, And frankly, we use so much remnant recycle that's not always that relevant, but of just providing immediate grants. And a lot of them have just ended up being cash assistance. It's, it's literally to help pay for groceries. It's to help them pay for vaccines if they're at cost. It's um, paying to have a medical staff. One of our grants was used to just have one of the government kind of medical people in the factory being able to test people, but it also allowed the factory to stay open because the Chinese government felt that they had like a government official there keeping track of the spread. Um, So there's a lot of innovative things you can do in the grant space, I think, to just reach out to your suppliers, knowing that they're taking much more of a hit than we are on the brand side. And yet they're part of your company. 
right? I mean, a lot of companies don't like to think about their suppliers as part of their company. But if moving to stakeholder business models, for me, if you're not considering your workers, if you're not considering your suppliers, if you're just considering your customers, you're leaving out the most vulnerable and you're kind of choosing to ignore the greatest risks you pose to people and planet, which definitely occur in the supply chain. Um, and so that's my supply chain spiel. And then I think from designers, what I'd love to know from you and, and feel free to make this more of a conversation is what are the struggles that you're kind of working with? How, how do you guys um, think about taking those things into account, how do you guys treat sustainability? I'd love to know some of the projects you're working on or if I could help you brainstorm around any issues. So I'll pause there. I think my biggest problem in designing is I get really overwhelmed with how big of a problem it is. Yeah. Right? <clears throat> Sometimes as I'm designing apparel, it's like, oh, this would be really cool. We need this in the world. And then I just think like, wait, no, we don't. We already have enough of everything, like you were saying. So I'm just curious if you, because this is your entire job, is to just worry about sustainability. Do you ever get overwhelmed and kind of discouraged? Or how do you fight that? <laughs> never. That never, never, never happens. I'm like, right? 100%, we got this. We don't even need to worry about it. It's not overwhelming at all. The size and complexity hard. of the problem is like not a big deal. It's totally solvable. Yeah, no, <laughs> no. I like panic every day about this. Um, okay. And it is super overwhelming. And I think the trick to it, at least in my mind, is understanding like what's material and what's not material to you. Meaning like not just what is the problem, where is the problem entering your design space and what can you do about it? And so I'd say for a mirror space, like I know a lot of designers, there's just so much new information on materials that come out every day. Like just, and that's where I would say, go into HIG, work in HIG index um, and just say, you know, I'm really curious about just like maybe recycled natural fibers, like maybe that's that's kind of where I start and start with something that's already taking into account the materials issue. And you already know that by working with, say, like a certified organic natural fiber and you're doing recycling, which is very hard to do with natural fibers, like that would be an amazing project because no one's really figured that one out yet. And we know that natural fibers are biodegradable easier to recycle wool, but we're still not seeing those things in projects. And I think that that's where the benefit of say like smaller academic programs or even smaller companies like Cotopaxi, we can go pilot something that these bigger companies that are these massive contributors, they just can't pilot something for them to go pilot. They're not built that way. They're not built to be that flexible or entrepreneurial. And um, so that's where I would think about it is like, just start somewhere and be positive um, in perspective. And I think that's the harder thing that I've had to remind myself is like, I'm not going to go ignore the bigger picture mm -hmm. because we know it's bad. We know it's pretty grim. And I feel like if you try to ignore it, both on a personal and professional dimension, I feel like it actually, it starts to seep in. And then you have this moment where it just overtakes you because yeah. you've been ignoring it. And so just saying, okay, man, this is a really big problem. I'm actually feeling super overwhelmed. I'm going to put that to the side. It's there. I'm not going to like hide it, but here's, here's maybe my little space where I'm going to go do something positive and pilot it and understand that, like, frankly, if you're taking into account sustainability from the smart as a designer, 
no matter what product you get to, you're already demonstrating a different kind of thinking that's happening in the mainstream. Like that's just still that kind of sustainability design, human centered design. That's I'm not seeing that across the, 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 you know, like forever 21's gap, like we got a ways to go, you know? So I'd say it's a hard balance of um, perspective and positivity. Cool. Thank you. Um, I had a question. So working in like the remnant space and uh, things like that, or like how you mentioned that we have a large excess of uh, materials, how do you compensate for like competitive material sciences? Like if you want to have like the newest or best materials or like you need improving on certain things like how do you compensate for that working in remnants and that's such an interesting question it's a it's a great question to ask and the answer our company answer to that was i don't think it's possible to work with remnant or really good recycled recycled materials have gotten much better um, and provide the highest technical performance and so that was a company decision we had to make that we were going to go for sustainability over technical performance. And so it's a trade-off. And I think that anyone in the design world, you guys understand this much better than your average consumer. Sustainability is a series of trade-offs. It's not a serious a series of obvious improvements. And so, you know, the compromise that you're making in sustainability, that which is what I really look at, isn't so much just the performance of the product. That is more my design development team. What I think about is the product should be remnant, but it also needs to be able to last. So I don't really want to work and say remnant poly cotton blends because we know that doesn't hurt like hold up and you're getting massive plastic shedding you're contributing to the phthalate crisis like some materials definitely upcycle better than others um, and it needs to be able to last long enough that it's not contributing to this wash three times have to throw it away because it, you're literally it's like falling apart so i think there's a series of trade-offs there that you have to go through as a designer um and i'd say there are some exciting movers in this space too queen of raw is a really interesting company that has blockchain information of all these materials and so it's everything from pretty high performing outdoor materials to really high end luxury fabrics. And so she just really built the first digital library of excess fabrics. Um, and so brands sell her excess fabrics. And in the same way that we set that up with our factory, she's made it available to a lot of a lot more uh, designers around the world to use. And she can really tell you exactly what the fabric performance is. And so there are people in the space who are doing that work. Um, I also know this is where I'm getting out of my comfort zone, but I also know that our development team works hard to say, you know, we might need to double up on a fabric 
to make a backpack last longer. And that's where it comes down to creative design and development and probably the world you guys are in more and could really probably blow my mind with your creativity in terms of how you would come up with creative solutions to to get that performance through those. I'd say though that prop chances are no matter what fabric you want to work with, there is a remnant out there. Like the way fashion is run is just so inherently uh, unsustainable. You overshoot fabric requirements by 20 to 40%, you know? Um, and a lot of brands build the destruction clause in there, meaning if you're an H&M, they'll deliberately overbuy because if they show proof of destruction for items that they don't sell, which is literally incinerating them, showing proof of incineration, in America, you get a healthy insurance kickback. So, and sometimes, you know, it, it's, it's wild in, in big scale capitalism, how you could take advantage of those loopholes that are so unsustainable, but definitely recommend that everyone try use remnant with it whenever possible. Um, I had a similar question to that. Um, in Cotopaxi, working like on a much larger scale, how are you able to like for me, I've been able to work on some um, projects with upcycling and do a lot of that and things that I found as scaling and getting that into like business so, and like how did we get scale up? What are some solutions or things you've learned trying to scale? It's such an interesting cycle? question and it's it's a really good one because it is challenging. And I think what we have to do is like, for example, all of our bigger wholesale partners like REI, they love that we do it, right? They love the sustainability bit, but they're like, well, we don't want that color. Could we switch that color for this color? Or could you like change the footprint of the bag a little bit? And we have to be like, no, we use the colors that we have when they're run out we use another color that needs to be decreased. We don't, you don't get to choose the color. Um, and, you know, we only screen print this way because otherwise screen printing is super unsustainable. And like the, a lot of your bigger brands, when you get to that point, they want to collaborate over your design. And we've had to do a lot of very hard expectation setting around like what's possible in Remnant and what's not. I think that the other space that we've leaned into it with is like, for example, the Del Dia line, just that there's a steady supply that, that we can always rely on for the shreds of backpack. Like the materials that go into that are just like, they're always pretty much available. No one else wants to use them. But for things like fleece, for example, Polar Tech was sitting on an entire warehouse of remnant. That might sound like a lot, but we sold out of remnant in that style in like three seasons. And so then when people go out, you know, we're kind of like, well, that was sort of limited run. We can bring it back in a recycled. And so we've had to work with partners. And so our concession has been, we do not use virgin materials. We will try and see if we can make that in a recycled format, knowing that that's not as sustainable as remnant. 
um, because you are still contributing to certain inputs. And, you know, depending on how, how much is recycled, it can only be like a five to 10% improvement. Sometimes it's a much bigger improvement than that for using recycled, but it depends. Um, and so that's what we've tried to educate partners on while also dangling this carrot of saying, hey, we could go find a cool remnant thing if you're willing to have more of a collab remnant-based product that we know is limited edition, basically, and that's how we're going to market it. Um, and so I think there are business ways that you can do that, but you need to be able to set expectations with whoever you're working with right off the bat. That said, I'd say the collab limited edition space feels established enough that that's a place where I think that more designers, more clothes designers could get um, just a little bit more ambitious, a little bit more entrepreneurial about using what's already been made. So how does uh, Cotopaxi go about procurement then or finding all those materials, I guess, especially if they're in limited supply? So I think that's where it comes down to collaboration. Um, and that's where it comes down to like, one of the first people who sold us their remnants was Patagonia. And at the consumer level, a lot of people would name them or a lot of board, our board members, frankly, would probably name them as our biggest competitor. They're also one of our biggest collaborators. Um, we're in the factories that we're in because Patagonia made an appeal to those factories that even though we couldn't meet minimum order quantities um, to allow us to come in because we were trying to be sustainable. We were another B Corp. And so that's, that's one aspect of that. And so, for example, for that particular factory where we buy a lot of goods from Camelback, from Patagonia, and from larger product runs, think Jansport, think OGO, um, we have those fabrics that come through that supplier. And it's really through the supplier that we've been able to build that out. And so, you know, historically... Um, working with suppliers has been this incredibly top-down approach where you're acting in a very authoritarian manner as a brand and you're not, you're, you don't go down the tier thinking about, um, you know, where is collaboration, what resources, what ideas, what social capital might my supplier be able to bring. And we're only able to run our Daldia program because our supplier really identified that as an issue. And so initially we, that idea didn't generate from us. It, it, gen, it, it came from that supplier. And so there's this sense that like, oh, suppliers are just not that environmentally friendly. They're very far behind the West in terms of accounting. That is absolutely not the case. You know, that's, that's just wrong. Um, the suppliers, they work in those communities. They see that environmental um have backlash like far more than we feel it over here and so that's where a lot of the best um, solutions i think live is with suppliers in terms of how you can be better as a company where the opportunities are i also think reaching out to brands in your competitor space and knowing that pretty much every larger brand out there is going to have a significant amount of excess fabric and some of them will just incinerate it. But in certain situations, thank goodness, regulations have changed. So they're sitting on warehouses of dead stock. We're a problem solver for them. Like when we came to Polar Tech for fleece, they were 
incredibly grateful. They were like, yeah, take the fabric here, you know, like basically, you know, selling it at cost of production. And so you also save a lot of money in terms of margin by using dead stock because you're not paying to have it made. Um, And so I, I think that that's kind of our approach in terms of finding, you know, these places where remnant might like to exist Um, And just reaching out to brands, reaching out to different suppliers, seeing if you're there dealing with these issues and kind of explaining how we work and how we could help solve for that. And then, like I said, there's also these first movers in the space of these banks of dead stock materials. Um, Queen of Raw is the biggest I know of. Um, probably the most sophisticated in terms of like its blockchain. They've done some pretty deep analysis of the fabrics that are on there. It's provenance. You can know where it comes from, which is important for the luxury sector. Um, but there are a lot of movers in this space now that that help facilitate um, identification of remnant spots. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, no worries. I had a quick question about that Queen of Raw page. Mm-hmm. Um, I might be exposing a little bit of my own ignorance here, but I always thought of Remnant as being just like small bits and pieces of fabric. But it's more or less like just yards that are left over, correct? Yeah. Okay. And I was wondering like why they were able to sell such large quantities if it was remnant, but I guess it just seems large to me. Most companies I'm only on small projects. Because companies, the problem is they'll buy all the fabric and then bring something to market, see how it does. And if it's a flop, then you're sitting on the fabric. Right. So I think, I mean, typically just like how this works for bigger companies, what you're going to do is um You'll send the money. You'll send money to your tier one supplier to go buy from a tier two supplier that you request. You'll give that information, and you're always gonna kind of overbill it the amount of fabric that you'll need for that product run, right? And so typically that's twenty percent. And so if you're an H and M and you bill it over twenty percent for an item that's gonna be in, you know some outrageous number of doors and online, that's going to be a lot of fabric. (laughs) So I think, you know, the strange thing is um, Cotopaxi is still down here. And I think the gap between like more small to medium-sized enterprise or even companies like a Patagonia in the $2 billion space, the leap from there to say Zara in terms of quantity and footprint is just huge there's like this weird massive gap so that's why you're not looking at scraps there you're looking at yards and acres acres of fabric literally so there's there'd be a lot of remnant out there just a lot there are also some cool ones too nude fabrics does the same thing so and that's definitely more B to B to C than B to B. I'd say Queen of Raw is more B to B. Um, Mood Fabrics tries to use upcycled. You can choose to select among remnant pieces that come from like designers. Um, and so, like just in my own world of tinkering, like you can buy 
like really nice silks that Hermes didn't use. You can buy silks that Calvin Klein didn't use that are all remnant. And so there's some cool options out there and it's a nice way of getting slightly more affordable, really nice fabrics. So as Cotopaxi has grown, have you found that it's more difficult to get remnants or is it just like an endless supply that's out there as much as you could ever want? Unfortunately, until we get the radical systems change, like we're not seeing any, we're seeing more remnant, not less. Um, And I think people like just don't realize that like it's, it's a strange thing in terms of colorway. Right. And so sometimes certain things are limited. And so what we see is certain limitations in colorway, if that makes sense. But, and also certain fabrics just being more available than others for remnants. Mm -hmm. Um, So we are just, we're seeing a lot of like, there's a lot of fleece remnant. There's a lot of cotton poly blends, like more of that than you could ever want to use in one lifetime. Um, And taffetas, very, like that's, that's very available. Um, and Cotopaxi in particular, where we sort of made our niche too, was using colors that someone might use for like a tag that became the basis for a whole sweater. And so I think our color blocking, you know, that wasn't a design decision so much as it was a sustainability decision to see if like quirky remnant could be, could be sold as a, as a similar piece. And it kind of keeps some of that upcycling. Like when you look at our products, it's not a surprise to anyone who's looking at them that you see the upcycledness about it. Like there's something um, that looks put together, but it is a little bit hodgepodgey sort of in terms of colors, you know, it is really unique and one of a kind. And so, um, yeah, we, we're definitely still seeing a lot of remnant. I think where we get, we have to push back is colorways. So like some of the Daldia color profiles and, and we will go back to our factory and say for this, if you could only use blues, like only whatever remnant blues you have, still remnant, but just, just blue green. So that's kind of the color palette. And so like, you know, we did run out of a certain blue and a certain green last year and REI just w- wanted to increase that colorway, And we had to explain like, that's no longer an option. And then that is where the partners can be like, well, we're not really comfortable buying into a different colorway that's available. And um, then, then the conversation gets trickier and we sort of say, well then, Hey, come on, you, you guys have your sustainability standards. This is a sustainability choice that you're making here. Um, and so like maybe don't buy into that. Or if you want us to make a switch to say non-remnant, but recycled items in this, here's what it looks, but here's how that decreases the sustainability performance of the product. And so just working with other designer teams, working with bigger companies like that to get them to understand how designers think, how sustainability think needs to happen, that it's a mindset, it's not a single solution. Um, And hopefully we can be part of the educator with some of these bigger companies. How do you choose those colorways with the companies? Do they send you samples of each of their remnants and stuff? And um... Yep, exactly. Um, 
And uh, that's the design process. Like I'm not the right person on our team. We have an amazing colorist, M. Smith. Um, now M. Givens. I you can definitely track her down on LinkedIn. I know she's always happy to talk to people, but yes, and she's really become, um, in my opinion, like one of the greatest colorists working within this kind of restricted world of remnant because it is restricted. You're placing restrictions on your kind of designer world by saying. Um, out of all of the potential materials, I'm only going to use this subset and you're designing to what's already available rather than um, some potentially unexisting kind of thing. Um, but I'd say that she, she tries to think very um, holistically about how colors are doing it so that we are paying attention to trends because you need to do that. Um, but that it's still earnestly remnant. Um, so I, I think that is how it, it happens. Suppliers send us the remnant. Lots of types of companies send us remnant. Like the amount of people, like we used to have to do a lot of outbound work to track down remnant. Now the number of people who are coming to us who just know like, oh, Cotopaxi will buy your remnant and get it off your inventory books. Like the number of people, especially in the COVID world, like in the COVID times who reach out to us is pretty phenomenal. And frankly, like we found that we can get pricing on fabric that, you know, our competitors wish they could get that kind of pricing because it's remnant. So there's a lot of business wins too with it. Do you find that uh, colors that are popular for a particular season show up more or less in remnant because other companies are ordering you know, that's, that's an interesting question. What we were finding is like just anything that's pretty vibrant, I'd say like more saturated colors in general end up in remnant a little bit more. Um, and it kind of depends on the product. I'd say a lot, like what the fabric is. Um, like for example, denim, there's just, there's a lot of remnant denim and that just looks like denim, um, you know? So it just sort of, it depends on material and it depends on color and definitely certain colors like will be less available for seasons than others. Um, and so like last year, I know it was hard for the design team to find like softer pinks. There seemed to be like a company or like a, you know, BOF, um, call that like pink was going to be one of the growing Pantone colors. So definitely sometimes like you see different colors going out. We're still shocked though, about just how many companies have just literally acres of excess fabric. Like it's, it's nuts. It's nuts. It's nuts to see pictures of these warehouses where there's just like fabric from the seventies that's been chilling in this warehouse. Just like, oh, and we're still making more, huh? Interesting. Just doesn't seem like we need any more. Just don't think we need any more. So, yeah. Um, colors. Are there any other companies in the industry that work with Remnant or do a really good job of using recycled products that you know of? Because I know Cotopaxi has always kind of been the industry standard for using reclaimed garment pieces or whatnot, but I, I just, say. Um, I'd say like one Patagonia has worn wear, which is not so much at scale. That's true. Upcycling, not remnant. Um, we would love to do that with our own products. At some point we launched a resale channel this year, which is cool. 
we'd love to expand into that space, but I do, I mean, you got to give Patagonia props and frankly, they've done, they've done so much in the back end to make sustainability affordable for other small to medium sized enterprises. Um, like for example, the sustainable apparel coalition and the Hig index um, before Patagonia came along and provided additional funding, like it lived in this weird world where literally only Walmart could use it. Um, it basically became an internal sustainability grid that Walmart did. And Patagonia was the one that was like, this can't live in a vacuum and it needs to be affordable for smaller size companies. And so, you know, now we make enough money to do it, but like it was cost prohibitive earlier in the day. And we really didn't know, you know, is this material more sustainable than another? So I think Patagonia, Patagonia is legit. Like that company is definitely what they say to be. And I'd say the outdoor industry as a whole, um, the like care about this factor is much higher and much more authentic than the rest of the apparel outdoor space. I think it's very refreshing to be in the outdoor industry. Um, that said, I'd say Remnant poses a particular challenge for the more technical brands in the space because um, I forget who on the team asked it, but you, you do compromise technical performance with Remnant. Like there's just not that kind of consistency that you would get from like, a really sturdy DWR coated um, waterproof piece that we're just like Arcteryx would go after that, but that doesn't make sense for us. Like we're, we're, we've kind of chosen not to go there. Like we're sort of like, we're the mid layer that you might partner with a really intense, good Patagonia shell um, because it's just really hard to make those products very sustainable. And again, Patagonia, Arcteryx have worked hard on this. Patagonia has worked with blue sign chemistry, which that's the chemistry that's most responsible and most sustainable. So instead of using say DuPont or 3M for the treatment of these petroleum based um, materials using someone like blue sign, which is out of Germany that has really made the process much, much more sustainable. Um, it's now, it's now possible to create pretty high performance materials that are definitely not in the category of as sustainable as remnant, but are much more sustainable than their equivalent was 20 years ago. And I think that those brands have put a lot of research and development with no like short-term short-term business wins into helping solve these hard material challenges for, for material for performance pieces. So that's my overall, I think outdoor sector bottom line is, is pretty pretty good on the sustainability bit. Like I don't see other outdoor brands as our biggest competitors. I see H&M, Forever 21, these fast fashion companies that are selling non-responsible down jackets. That's who we want to go after. That's at the end of the day who we want to take market share from. Just to chime in here, you, you all are going to get a demo of HIG later in the semester from one of our current students and then a representative from blue sign is going to speak at the end of the semester as well. So. Awesome. Do you have any other good resources for remnant fabric? Uh, mood fabrics and queen of raw are the ones I really recommend. I'd also say like just reaching out to companies and be like, Hey, I'd really love to help design with some of your remnant um, I think companies in-house definitely want that who might not be as far along as we are as a company. 
I think it's a really good internship opportunity that more companies should have open is like a sustainable design and just let people, people like you guys go in and kind of think about how design could be done differently and do some limited runs. Again, I think that that's where, if you know, you could have X yards of fabric that are going to make Y number of products, have it be, you know, a limited edition, get people psyched about it, have it be like a soft launch for moving in a more sustainable direction, show that there's proof of concept. I think that there's a lot that can be done there. And I think most companies in the textile apparel space have this as a problem. Is there any product that you think, well, I know you said you're not a designer, but is there any product that you would like to see added to Cotopaxi's line that you think could be easily incorporated uh, to your guys' lineup? I think natural fibers. I mean, I, th- I think that um, I'm not sure how much you guys have followed some of the revelations that have come out on phthalates, but phthalates are in any petroleum-based product. Um, so any of your polys, rayons, nylons, whatever, but literally it's, it's destroying um, our ability to procreate as a species. Like we're not going to be able to procreate without artificial assistance by 2045 due to phthalates. So I would love to move away from anything that's petrochemical based. Um, and that's a hard thing because that's everything in performance. And to be honest, even at Cotopaxi, I can say like, that it does not feel like an achievable goal right now. But what I'd love to do is move more in the direction of natural fibers. We know that natural fibers, that's what we evolved with this species. They don't contain plastics is a very definition. They can be reused. They're inherently biodegradable. Um, and so moving in the natural fiber space is, um, is really kind of next up for us. How can we add in some things like socks, mid layers, talk about the natural fiber difference. There's also a lot of really cool, like social enterprise models with smaller scale farmers, say from alpacas in Peru. And so there's some cool human connections that can happen there that you don't really see on the petrochemical side. Um, And uh, so, yeah, I would definitely get pretty excited about that. And I think, The leader in that space, in my opinion, is Eileen Fisher. They've pretty much only ever um, worked with natural fibers, and they've done a lot of pioneering work around setting up wool standards, that kind of thing. Um, And they also have remnant upcycled. I would definitely recommend checking that out. Um, But yeah, so that's, that's a cool space, I think, to think about. Cool. Thank you. Um, I reached out to some companies last semester, um, just looking for a certain fabric. And what I heard back from a few of them was just that a lot of their fabrics are like proprietary fabrics. And so um, like they own the, the fabric and the content of it in the specific way that they've created it. Um, So I know you mentioned that you use Koto or Patagonia's fabrics, do you just work with them on that and like have an agreement that you're allowed to use those or like so if you interestingly those, enough, we really do that at the supplier level. That's where you just go to the supplier. Here's the thing. Brands are all the time they're trying to patent this whiz bang technology. The reality is 
their suppliers are the ones who are making it. And nine times out of 10, it's like an idea that the supplier had that the brand then swoops in and patents. Um, and sometimes when the supplier is clever, they'll own the patent. So you guys, I'm sure, have seen that this is made with X number of plastic bottles. Well, that's one supplier who figured that out. You know, it was like one super passionate guy in North Carolina who got really sick of just seeing plastic water bottles wash, like wash up on the beach and was like, let's make a fabric out of that because you can make fabrics out of anything plastic. And he was the person to figure that out with his supplier team. Um, and you see a lot of brands kind of taking credit for that. And so, I, first of all, I just don't support patented fabrics like i just think it's that's the lame aspect i think of the outdoor industry and that for me is like okay great have fun sitting on your patented fabric that you know is is i'm sure it does really amazing things in your warehouse like yeah yeah it's out there really testing the limits of its like you know ability to waterproof the person who's definitely not wearing it because you're not using it. So there's some of that about like kind of swiping in and I would recommend maybe reaching out to some B Corps first, like reach out to companies who are a little bit nicer. I wouldn't reach out to the big dogs right away. And I would say that the most technical in the space can behave a little bit oddly around stuff like this, in my opinion. In which case I would go, man, I think there's huge opportunity to like skip the brand to brand, like go, go talk to suppliers, go talk to suppliers about what their pain points are about, um, you know, whether they've ever considered a direct to consumer model. Like that blows my mind that more suppliers, um, China's figured it out a little bit through Amazon. Um, there's a lot of just Chinese suppliers that are selling directly through Amazon, which has some negative human rights um, topics because there's no uh, Amazon doesn't have any auditing requirements for brands to sell through its platforms the way REI does. On the same hand, it's allowing some suppliers to cut out this brand middleman and reach Western consumers directly, which means that you know they're making a, a lot better returns. So I would reach out to suppliers if you're not getting good, good responses from brands. Awesome. Well, Annie, we're at the end of our class. We, I think, could spend another hour with you listening um, to what you have to share with your experience um, with Cotopaxi. And I really appreciate you meeting us so early this morning. And thank you so, so much. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me. You guys are superheroes. Keep doing what you're doing. Um, it's so important. We need better designers and space to go, you know, really, really put values first. So looking forward to seeing some of your projects and feel free to keep in touch and connect with me on LinkedIn. Always happy to hear from any of you. Thanks for listening to the Highlander podcast. For more conversations with outdoor leaders, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, watch episodes on the Outdoor Product Design and Development YouTube channel, or on opdd.usu.edu slash podcast. Follow along on Instagram at USU Outdoor Product and let us know how you're enjoying the show.